You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We are on page 924. If you are following along in one of our church Bibles, I am on page 1,680 in my Bible, but that helps no one but me. So, 924, if you're following along in one of our church Bibles. I'd like to begin this morning by making a beeline right to the scriptures, and then quickly review what we have already covered before focusing on the last two verses. So let's read Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What we have here is Paul's philosophy of ministry. These are the convictions that fueled his actions. This is is why he did what he did. This is what drove him to do what he did. And what we have here, these convictions, they serve as an example for us and for the future of our church. He provides six essential truths that embody and exemplify a faithful ministry. You want to know what a faithful ministry looks like? Well, Paul lays it out for us here in this text. By way of review, we have already looked at number one, the manner of gospel ministry. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, That is the church. And you'll remember we took that one verse and we broke it apart into several pieces. And we saw that gospel ministry is joyful. It's difficult. It's selfless. It's Christ-centered and it's church-focused. Second, the mandate of gospel ministry. Look at verse 25. Speaking of the church, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Here we saw the minister's stewardship and the minister's service. And to better understand stewardship, we need to first come to grips with the sovereignty of God. We have to understand just how big and powerful and all-controlling and all-knowing he really is because he owns and controls everything. We are simply stewards or caretakers of everything that we have. And everything that we have has been given to us by God and for God. That's the minister's stewardship. And the minister's service is simply to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. In other words, we have been called to preach the word, to proclaim the word, to know Jesus, and to make him fully known. 
to the greatest extent possible. That is the mandate of gospel ministry. Thirdly, we saw the manifestation of gospel ministry. In verse 26, he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul is referring to something that was once concealed, but has now been revealed. This isn't a mystery that needs to be figured out. It's already been figured out. It's been given to us. And the New Testament is full of mysteries that were once hidden. They were once veiled from Old Testament saints, but have now been uncovered for New Testament believers. So what is this mystery or this secret that we see here in verse 26? Paul tells us right away in the next verse with point number four, the magnitude of gospel ministry, the magnitude concerning us, the saints. He says, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is something that God has chosen to make known. This great, rich, and glorious mystery that was introduced in the Old Testament but kept under a blanket until the Christ, until the Messiah would come and blow the whole thing wide open. And that's where we ended last week. We have six verses and six points. Today we're going to look at the last two aspects of a faithful ministry. So with that said, and probably the fastest introduction I have ever delivered, (laughs) number five. Paul reveals the mission of gospel ministry. The mission of gospel ministry. Look at verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the whole enchilada when it comes to faithful ministry. This is it, the whole package. This is the crashing crescendo of an answer to that critical question, how? How do we do this? How could we possibly accomplish verses 24 through 27? What does a faithful ministry look like? What are its nuts and bolts? What do we need to do to effectively know Jesus and make him known? Colossians 1.28 provides a comprehensive battle plan for accomplishing that goal. And it naturally falls apart into three sections, three pieces, beginning with our message, our message. Paul says, him we proclaim. Now, all three of these words are important. The him, following the phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory, couldn't possibly refer to anyone else other than the Lord Jesus himself. He is the object of our proclamation, and he must be the very center and the supreme focus of everything that we do here at this church. Of all ministry, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're cleaning a toilet, do it for the glory of God and do it with Christ in mind. The we, notice the shift from first person singular to first person plural, him we proclaim. Paul includes the Colossians and us by extension here. I mentioned last week that this text is not solely set aside for ministers, for pastors, for people who have made this their full-time job. No, this is for all of us this morning. Every person in this room, no one is exempt. If you have been saved by the gospel, then you have been called to a gospel ministry. 
every single person here. And what have you been called to? You've been called to proclaim, to proclaim. This word means to solemnly testify into public. This is kata angelo, it means to announce. It's an emphatic word. It's made for Paul in his ministry. This word was used exclusively for Paul's preaching in Acts. And Paul is the only other New Testament writer. He's the only other person for the rest of the Bible who uses this word in regards to his own preaching and his own teaching. It means to preach with power. This is not mumbling a prayer underneath the table over your food at the restaurant. This is a puff your chest out and shout, thus saith the Lord, sort of a word. And this is our message. We unashamedly at this church and as we leave this building, we unashamedly preach, teach, witness, announce, evangelize, exhort, persuade, and proclaim the work and person of Jesus the Messiah. Paul models this. We have more than one example for us in Scripture, but Paul models this so well, especially here in this letter to the Colossians. He preaches Christ. He proclaims Christ. And he makes it very clear who this Jesus is. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Jesus is God. That's a good way to start, isn't it? Jesus is God. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And again in verse 19, for in him all the fullness, all of the fullness of deity, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul wants to make it very clear. Jesus is God. He's not like God. He's not part of God. He is God of very God. And he is also sovereign. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, For in him, again, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule. All rule and authority. In other words, the buck stops with Christ. You can't go any higher. He is at the top of all food chains. He is the boss of all bosses. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is sovereign God. He is also the creator, chapter 1, verse 16. Even if we just take those verses in that section, just one by one, without unpacking all of the truth found here, chapter 1, verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, all of creation, seen and unseen, high and low, everything in between, all of it has been created by him, through him, and for him. He is the sovereign creator God. And he is also the sustainer of all things. The very next verse in line, right there in chapter 1, verse 17, says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything holds together. All things means simply that, all things. It doesn't matter what you refer to. He is the one who controls it, who upholds it, who maintains it and sustains it. He is the sovereign creator God who sustains all things. Christ Jesus is also the head of the church and preeminent in everything. Verse 18, 
And he is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Are you noticing the superlatives here concerning Christ, who he is? He is the head. Just as the head is the command center for the body, so is Christ the commander of the church. He builds it, he controls it. When he says jump, the church jumps. When he says move, the church moves. Without your head, your body wouldn't get very far. Anyone who has ever watched a zombie movie in their life knows this. You you don't go for the legs, you go for the head. You can't make it through life without the head. Sure, you can make it without a finger, without a foot, without an arm or a leg, but you can't survive, period, once you've lost your head. Paul says when it comes to the church body, Jesus is the head. And he is preeminent. He holds the top spot, the first chair, the highest place on the wall. He is first place in everything. He is first in our preaching. He is first in our discipleship. He is first in our evangelism. He's first in our worship. He's first in our counseling. He's first in our Sunday school. He's first in our missions. He is first in our everything. He is preeminent in everything. Christ is preeminent. We could go on and on this morning. We could drown ourselves in this little letter alone in Colossians about how great and just how magnificent our Christ is. But the point is simply this, that this is the Christ that we preach. Our message is simple. We do not preach a set of rules. We do not preach a political cause. We do not preach a man-centered theology. We preach a resurrected and glorified Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The God-man, who while being all that he is, and all that we have just briefly looked at this morning, even here in Colossians, and all throughout God's word, as God, he died on the cross, conquered the grave, rose from the dead, and offers eternal life to those who will hear this message, who are awakened by the Holy Spirit to believe this message and are therefore transformed by this message to walk in newness of life as new creatures and creations in Christ. This must be our central message and our central commitment here at First Baptist Church to proclaim this sovereign creator God who is the sustainer of all things and the head of all things, the church, especially the church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you knew his name was coming. For his first sermon as senior pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London, the text that he preached was Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What a great text. What a wonderful text. Here's what he shouted from his introduction in that sermon, and this sets the tone for his ministry. He said, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist. But if I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. 
Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. And then he launched into his sermon. On another occasion, he added, if I had only one more sermon to preach before I died, it would be about my Lord, Jesus Christ. And I think that when we get to the end of our ministry, one of our regrets will be that we did not preach more of him. I am sure no minister will ever repent of having preached him too much. And even though he didn't know which sermon was going to be his last, guess what? He died preaching Christ. Friends, if we fail to make much of Christ, we will fail to be a faithful church. Christ is our message. So we must, we must know him and make him known. That is the first part of a faithful ministry's mission, our message. Number two, our method. Our method. How do we do this? By warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Notice the two aspects of rightly proclaiming Christ. The first is negative, the other is positive. He begins with warning. Warning everyone. And you might say for... If you're following along this morning, you might say to yourself, now wait a minute, Hans. When it comes to the unbelieving world, I get it. They're perishing. They're literally on the highway to hell. We do want to warn them from the coming destruction, but we established last week that the context of this passage, that Paul is talking to the church about the church. And Jesus has already paid the price for our sins. I'm heaven bound. He said it's finished and I believe him. So, So what are these warnings in the church? Aren't positive affirmations of the truth enough? Why do we need to warn each other? Warn each other about what exactly? We just sang that song, Jesus paid it all. Are you telling me now that he didn't? Well, the short answer is no. Because sin is still a big deal. Even within the church. Jesus has taken on the full penalty of our sins on the cross. He paid the price in full and there is now therefore no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. However, the penalty for sin and the consequences of sin are two totally different things. True, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear when it comes to the final judgment. But you still suffer the consequences for your sin and for the sin of others, don't you? Can, can we all agree to that? We all suffer from the sinful actions of others and ourselves because consequences are real. And so the loving action for us to take is to bite the bullet and to warn each other about the sin that we see in each other. And as I was thinking about this this week and preparing this message and doing my own study, I got to thinking, why don't we do this? What are some of the reasons why we don't warn each other? especially when we do see sin in each other's lives. And I'm sure that there are many, many more, but I came up with at least three. These are the ones that came off the top of my head, just immediately, like that. I want to share those with you. Reasons why we fail to warn and admonish one another in the church. Here they are. We think little of sin. We don't really love each other. And we're afraid. 
First of all, we think little of sin, and that's unacceptable. We can't afford to be passive or dismissive of sin. God hates sin, and he has a lot to say about it. Of the Bible's 66 books, 1,189 chapters, only four of those chapters in two books fail to mention sin or sinners at all. Only four chapters in two books don't mention sin. And those chapters bookend the story, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. These four chapters stand alone as unique intervals describing a world before and after sin's infection. But the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3-1 to Revelation 20-15, it's full of human sin and the need for salvation. Make no mistake, sin is a major doctrine. And I'll say it again, if we fail to make much of Christ, then we fail in our faithfulness of a church And and, and I'll add to that, the same is true for sin. We cannot afford to make little of it. It was John Owen who famously coined the phrase, be killing sin or it will be killing you. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, which I highly recommend, it's a little book. Don't be so intimidated by the title, The Mortification of Sin. It's a wonderful book and I highly recommend it to you. He writes in that book, sin is always acting always conceiving, always seducing and tempting. He goes on to say that sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if left alone, if not continually mortified or killed, it will bring forth a great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sin. He says sin is like the grave. It is never satisfied, and if left alive, it will only grow to produce more death. Another reason we fail to warn and admonish one another is we don't really love each other. I mean, sure, we say that we do. We might love being around each other. We might love what we get from each other, but we don't really love each other. Love doesn't sit idly by while a child plays with rattlesnakes. It doesn't turn a blind eye or fail to speak when disaster is coming, and especially when it's already here. If we truly love each other as a body, if we love each other like we're supposed to, like we're commanded to in Scripture, we'll look out for each other spiritually. We'll step up to the plate and we'll warn each other about the dangers of sin. And finally, we fail to do this because we're afraid. We're afraid. Afraid of what others might think, how it will be received, afraid of exposure. What if, what if our own sin gets drawn out in the process and thrown back in our faces? We're afraid. In 1969, in the face of Hurricane Camille, 23 people in past Christian Mississippi were planning on what they called a hurricane party. Here's how one account tells the story. The wind was howling outside the posh Richelieu apartments when police chief Jerry Peralta pulled up sometime after dark. Facing the beach less than 250 feet from the surf, the apartments were directly in the line of danger. A man with a drink in his hand came out to the second floor balcony and waved. Peralta yelled up, you all need to clear out of here as quickly as you can. The storm is getting worse. 
But as others joined the man on the balcony, they just laughed at Peralta's order to leave. This is my land, one of them yelled back. If you want me off, you're going to have to arrest me. Peralta didn't arrest anyone, but he wasn't able to persuade them either to leave. He wrote down the names of their next of kin for 20 or so people who gathered there to party through the storm. They laughed as he took their names. They had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. It was 10.15 p.m. when the front wall of the storm came ashore. Scientists clocked Camille's wind speed at more than 205 miles per hour, the strongest on record. Raindrops hit with the force of bullets. The waves off the Gulf Coast crested between 22 and 28 feet high. News reports later showed that the worst damage came at the little settlement of motels and go-go bars and gambling houses known as Past Christian Mississippi, where some 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the Richelieu Apartments. Nothing was left of that three-story structure but the foundation. The only survivor was a five-year-old boy found clinging to a mattress the following day. As Walter Cronkite reported that story in the days that followed, he said, this is the place where 23 people laughed in the face of death and where 23 people died. I share that terrible story with you because sometimes being the one who sounds the alarm is not popular. But friends, we have to do it. We have to. There is too much at stake not to. We know that the Corinthians, again, a church, a real church, but a church with problems, they were turning a blind eye to serious sin in their church, and Paul rebuked them harshly for it. They had a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, and everybody knew about it. And Paul refers to their acceptance of this man as arrogance. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And he goes on to say that just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And we cannot afford to take sin in the church lightly. Church, sin destroys. Sin kills. And the effects of sin are devastating. We can't afford to make little of that. We can't afford to ignore it or turn a blind eye. If we are going to fulfill this mission, if we are going to know Jesus and make him known as the body of Christ himself, then we must make this our business, to go about warning each other of the real dangers of sin. And the word for warning found here in our text, it's a counseling word, nutheteo, where we find nuthetic counseling, where that comes from. It means to admonish, warn, instruct, to counsel someone, to correct their course so they avoid bad conduct. And in order for this to be done properly in a way that helps and doesn't hinder, we can't allow ourselves to forget point one of last week's sermon, and that is the manner of gospel ministry. If we are joyfully persevering, selflessly centered on Christ for the sake of his church, only then can we give and receive these warnings to each other well. If we really love each other, if we really fear God more than man, if we hold fast to these same convictions that Paul had, that he modeled for us and commanded us to follow, then guess what happens, church? 
we start becoming the church. At that point, we are fulfilling the call of Christ and we are preparing to be the bride that he is coming back for. But that's only half or one aspect, the negative side of gospel ministry that yields positive results. The other half is teaching. He says, warning everyone and teaching everyone. And teaching is simply the positive activity of communicating Christian truth. A little, little later in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing or warning one another in all wisdom. These are the exact same words that we have in our verse, teaching and warning, warning and teaching. And this is what happens when the word of Christ does that, when the word of Christ dwells in us richly. We warn and we teach. As we love God's word, we share God's word. And as God's word is working its way out of us, then God's word starts to work its way into others. But as the old saying goes, you don't know what you don't know. And it is a sad commentary but true that so many, so many so-called Christians today do not know the Jesus of the Bible. In his book, Christless Christianity, Michael Horton writes, quote, when push comes to shove, many Christians today justify their beliefs and practices on the basis of their own experiences. Regardless of what the church teaches, or perhaps even what is taught in scripture, the one unassailable authority in the American religion is the self's inner experience. This means, however, that it is not only one's relationship with Jesus, but Jesus himself who becomes a wax figure to be molded according to whatever experiences, feelings, and felt needs one has decided to become most decisive. End quote. Friends, there is only one Jesus worth knowing. We don't serve a moldable Christ. We serve the rock of ages. He is the savior of scripture. And there is a connection between faithful teaching and faith-filled hearing. And this is all reinforced by that little phrase that Paul tacks on to the end there. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with what? With all wisdom, all wisdom. In other words, it's not good enough for us to adopt the Nike slogan and just do it. We can't afford to just do it. To fulfill this message faithfully, we need to know what to say and how to say it. We need to speak, yes, but our proclamation must also be delivered with discernment and understanding. And this is the application to our method. We warn and we teach, we admonish and instruct, but we don't do it foolishly. We speak the truth in love. We restore the brother gently. And we submit to the biblical principles that are found here in God's word for holy living. At First Baptist Church, this is the pattern. This is our message. Our message is Christ. This is our method. Our method is warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And will we fail? Of course we will. Of course we will. We will fail occasionally. But this is what we do. And this is our goal. And this is always set before us. This is the standard that God has presented for his bride, for his church. This is what we do. Finally, to finish out verse 28, Paul provides our motivation. 
our motivation. He says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is the goal. We don't just win people to Christ, we disciple them with our message and our method into full-blown spiritual maturity. This word maturity or teleos, it's a difficult word to translate into English. It's a really hard one. Most translations will say mature or perfect, but neither really captures the true sense of the word. They come close, but perfect is too strong and mature is too weak. I mean, perfect implies absolution, whereas maturity is just too relative. I mean, the word, the word mature invites us to think that maybe we have achieved teleos, maybe we've arrived, maybe we've gotten there based solely on how we compare ourselves with other Christians. That's the problem with the word maturity, right? How do I know if I'm mature or not? Well, that person over there obviously isn't. So by extension, that makes me mature, right? No, it's not the best word. No, this word rightly lands somewhere between the two, between maturity and perfect. And it refers to someone who is so, whole, so wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord that their conduct is blameless. One commentator writes, teleos is the complete and undivided way in which a person with all one's positive and negative attributes is oriented towards Christ. In other words, to be teleos in Christ, to be mature, complete, perfect in Christ is to possess a blameless, life-changing devotion to Christ that colors everything that you do, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, and that is the goal. That is what we're looking towards. That's what we want for ourselves and for each other, is to be more like Christ. I hope and pray that I am more like Christ five years from now than I am today. I hope I'm more like Christ five minutes from now than I am right now. And I hope the same for you. I pray the same for you, that we would all become more and more and more like Christ. That's the goal. That's our motivation here at First Baptist Church. We want to see God raise up men and women through the proclamation of Christ, the warning of sin, the teaching of Scripture, and the application of wisdom until we are all totally devoted, sold out, empty and full for the gospel of Christ and the hope of glory. That is the mission of this church, and that is how we do business for the Lord. Paul, the great missionary and evangelist, was not satisfied with half-hearted professions of faith. That wasn't enough for him. He demanded blameless devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so do we. We don't look for changed minds. We look for changed lives. We want to see folks come to Christ and become like Christ. We want to see growth. And notice, too, that the target audience here in this verse. What does Paul emphasize? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He stacks the pieces of this mission together and he keeps saying everyone, everyone, everyone. Now he doesn't mean everyone in the universe, obviously, but the context certainly includes everyone we encounter, everyone that God brings into the scope of our ministry. We are to fulfill this mission faithfully and there are no excuses, no excuses. That's point number five. And aren't you glad that I broke this sermon out into two messages? 
We have looked at the manner of gospel ministry, the mandate of gospel ministry, the manifestation of gospel ministry, the magnitude of gospel ministry, and the mission of gospel ministry. Finally, finishing it all out, we see the means of gospel ministry. Look at verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We'll break this verse into two parts, and these two parts are simply the the two sides of the same coin. They are the heads and tails of gospel ministry. If you you want, I, I would like for you to note our struggle and his strength. Our struggle and his strength. Paul says, for this I toil struggling. Friends, ministry is hard work. And we are not called to be lazy. Go ahead and flip over real quickly with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. I realize that this is only week two of my being your senior pastor. However, if I ever start feeling sorry for myself or complain about the ministry here at the church, I want you to point me back to this portion of scripture. Just slap me on the side of the head with it and remind me of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at how hard Paul's work in the ministry was. Starting in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's pretty proud, Paul. But he goes on to say, I am talking like a madman, okay? I'm insane. But far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If you read that after a hard week in ministry, You're going to walk away thinking, I've never had it so good. What did we say last week? It's suffering first and then what? Suffering first, then glory. That's the pattern we see all through scripture. Suffer first, then glory. We toil, we labor, we work, we struggle, we strive for the mission of gospel ministry to be accomplished. For the growth of the saints into Christlikeness. Back to our text, this word struggling, agonizomai, where the English word agony comes from. It harkens back to ancient athletics. It means to fight, to struggle, to stretch your muscles, to push through the pain, to never give up, to die trying. It means to labor to exhaustion. This is the opposite of lazy. And we have no excuse not to fulfill this mandate. In the 1800s, Pastor George Lorimer met a man who claimed to be a Christian. 
When he asked him if he were a member of a church, the man answered, no. The dying thief never joined a church, and he went to heaven. Lorimer scratched his head, but you support the cause of missions, right? The man replied, no. The dying thief never contributed to missions, and he went to heaven. To which the pastor replied, yes, but he was a dying thief, and you are a living one. Friends, there are a number of nice-sounding excuses out there for failing to put the work in. They abound. And I keep hearing more and more, just when I thought I've heard them all, I hear more and more excuses as to why we should not do this, why we don't have to as Christians, believe it or not. But friends, they all fall short. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling. The other side of ministry's coin is God's strength. He, he says he struggles with all of his energy, again, referring to Christ, that he powerfully works within me. God's work would be of little importance if not for the power of Christ. The words energy and works here are both the same word. They have the same root Greek word, energia. And when I hear that word, whenever I look at it, especially here within the context of this passage, I cannot help but think of energizer batteries. As believers, we are all like that energizer bunny of those classic commercials. So long as we have the power, we keep doing what? We keep going and going and going. We keep beating that drum over and over and over again. But the second you take the battery out, all ministry stops. This is why we work ourselves past the point of exhaustion. But even then, all we have and do is all of Christ and all of his grace as he powerfully works within us. This is what faithful ministry looks like, folks. Paul has provided for us here a very strong philosophy of ministry. At First Baptist Church, our message is Christ. Our method is warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And our motivation is Christ-likeness as we work hard to accomplish this goal according to the mighty power of Christ within us. But before we close, I want to share with you a story from a book that I referenced earlier, Christless Christianity. It's a good book. Got it here somewhere. Here. Listen to this. Several years ago, a mainline theologian told me of his experience at an evangelical megachurch. He was visiting his children and grandchildren during spring break. In the church, they attended Easter Sunday. Nothing visibly suggested that it was a Christian service, but this distinguished theologian tried to rein in his judgments. There was no greeting from God or sense that this was God's gathering. The songs were almost exclusively about us, our feelings, and our intentions to worship, obey, and love, but it was not clear whom they were talking about or why. He concluded, well, evangelicals don't really have a liturgy. They put all their content into the sermon, so I'll wait. However, his patience was not rewarded. Although it was Easter, the message, with no clear text, was on how Jesus gives us strength to overcome our obstacles. Lacking even a benediction, this theologian left discouraged. 
He had come to an evangelical church at Easter and instead of meeting God and the announcement of a real victory over sin and death by Jesus Christ, he encountered other Christians who were being given fellowship and instruction for making their own Easter come true in their life. Pressed with leading questions by his son-in-law as to his reaction to the service, such as, did it touch your heart and so forth, the theologian broke his silence. He said, I assume... You're trying to evangelize me right now, he said. But there was no gospel anywhere in that service that might convert me if I were unconverted. Not even in the most liberal churches I've been in was the service so devoid of Christ and the gospel. It's like God who? God who? Church, this is a common experience for so many churches today. And it is my prayer that such a thing would never be written about us. Never be written about this church. He opens the book with a question that I would also pose to you here at the very beginning. And this is a very provocative question. He says, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Can you imagine that? What would it look like? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that he also broadcasts nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would fill and be filled with tiny or with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, the children would say yes sir and no ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Church, let's make every effort in all of our ministries, in all of our struggles, in all of our labors, faithfully as the church of Christ who proclaims Christ. As Spurgeon says, he is all of theology. Everything is wrapped into Christ his person and his work, the sovereign creator God who is the sustainer of all things and the head of all things. Friends, let's make every effort. For this we toil, for this we struggle with all of the power that he powerfully works within us. Let's make every effort to know Jesus and to make him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Again, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. Thank you for giving us this philosophy of ministry. God, I pray that each and every piece that we have looked at here over the last two weeks, I pray that this passage would just soak into the pores of our being. Lord, that it wouldn't just come and go either, but that this would stay with us, that this would stick with us like a heavy meal. Lord, again, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I pray that we will be changed by it. I pray that in the days ahead, as we face many challenges here at First Baptist Church, I pray that we will remember these things. Lord, we know that you are building your church. We know that you love your church. Lord, we know that the church is not a building, but a people that you have called out of the world, that you have called out of darkness, and that you have brought into light. God, I pray that you would protect your church, that you would hold us close, 
But Lord, again, we know that you don't protect us from adversity. You don't protect us from struggle. You don't protect us from pain. So God, I pray that your purposes would be accomplished. Lord, we know the pattern. Suffering first and then glory. I just pray that through it all, Lord, that we would be found faithful. That this would be a faithful church. That we would grow into greater Christ-likeness. That we would reach that maturity, that perfection, that completeness in you, Lord. That we would be teleos. Lord, I pray that we would grow more and more into the likeness of your son. Thank you again for your love, for your mercy and grace. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.